Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, here today to talk to you about what else? Microsoft Times Activision, or more specifically, about a number of news items over the course of the past week that suggest that Microsoft's pending acquisition of Activision for nearly $70 billion may be closer to completion than it's ever been before. But before we get to the specifics there, I do want to mention that Virtual Legality, like every other show on this channel, is supported by viewers and listeners like you, either by becoming members of the channel directly or through our support platforms of Utreon and Patreon. So if you like this video, if you want to see more videos like it, please consider supporting the channel at one of these platforms, as Melissa Latimer has done, and very special thanks to her for her support of the channel. Now, in order to understand these most recent news items, I do think it's important to get a little bit of background for where this deal has been in the course of the past 30 to 60 days. Here's an article from The Verge two weeks ago written by Tom Warren titled, Microsoft isn't happy with a UK regulator's math on its Activision Blizzard deal. Now that UK regulator is of course the Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, and Microsoft's complaint is that the CMA has miscalculated the profits that Microsoft could expect to receive from pulling Call of Duty away from PlayStation as well as the losses it would also incur from the loss of revenues from no longer selling the game on the PlayStation platform. Or as they say in the article, unfortunately, there are clear errors in the figures being used to value the small number of Sony customers who might move to Xbox in the absence of Call of Duty, says Rima Aleli, Corporate Vice President and Deputy General Counsel for Microsoft, in a statement to The Verge. As we've always said, any realistic modeling of the true cost of removing Call of Duty from PlayStation players clearly demonstrates that there is absolutely no financial incentive for us to do so, which is why we have repeatedly said we won't. Our actions demonstrate that we want to bring more games to more people, not less. Now, however you feel about that final quote at the end, it is obvious to everybody that the CMA, as well as all other regulators across the world, need to get their math right in order to understand what it is they're regulating and why. So whether or not Microsoft wants to expand gaming to everyone or whether it seeks to injure its competitors, which is the nature of competition, the CMA has to get its math right. And Microsoft says that it got it wrong. In a response that was labeled as strictly confidential and posted earlier this month, Microsoft said to the CMA that their math was incorrect and that they had issues with it. First, they had a problem with the overall concept that they would otherwise foreclose Sony from competing in the video game space simply by taking one game away. Vertical concerns based on input foreclosure are rare, and the CMA has found a substantial lessening of competition, an SLC, on such a basis in only three Phase 2 cases, says Microsoft. Under its first theory of harm, the CMA provisionally concludes that Microsoft would have the ability and incentive to foreclose Sony by withholding Call of Duty post-merger, to actually injure Sony so much that they would have to exit the competition space within the console gaming market. This concern is predicated on the view that withholding a single game could lead to foreclosure of the PlayStation console platform. PlayStation is significantly larger than Xbox and has much more exclusive content. Looking at the two consoles in isolation, PlayStation has been the larger console for more than 20 years, says Microsoft. A YouGov survey commissioned by Microsoft, which draws from a wider pool of eligible respondents, confirms that the likely diversion rate is only 3%, or as Microsoft is arguing to the CMA, they only think 3% of people would leave Sony for Microsoft if Call of Duty were not available on the Sony ecosystem. It is simply not plausible that an SLC could arise in these circumstances. It is clear that the loss of sales by competitors is not problematic in and of itself. Or as we said very early in this playlist, competition is competitors trying to take market share from each other. You actually have to hurt competition on the whole in order for a regulator to have the authority to step in and otherwise curtail or block a deal of this type. Further, as discussed in that Verge headline, Microsoft has an issue with the math used by the CMA. The provisional findings attempt to overcome the absence of documentary evidence through financial modeling and vague but unsubstantiated references to long-term strategic benefits Microsoft might hope to achieve. Both are flawed. 
The CMA's primary financial modeling is based on the lifetime value, or LTV, of customers that might divert to Xbox. However, the CMA's LTV calculation contains a fundamental and obvious error. In calculating the gains to Microsoft of a withholding strategy, the calculation uses a five-year gross profit figure, but in assessing the losses side, it uses a figure that measures losses for only a single year. So what Microsoft is saying here is that the CMA determined that Microsoft would pull Call of Duty by taking all the money they would make from the players that came over to Xbox over five years and only subtracting the losses of the loss of sales of Call of Duty for one year. Obviously, that math is going to skew towards wanting to pull the product because the profits will be so much higher over the course of five years than the losses over one year. Microsoft says that's the problem. Once the error is corrected, it is clear that there is no incentive to withhold. As it is, the real long-term strategic benefits to Microsoft in the deal lie in the cross-device distribution of games and not in any so-called quote-unquote strategic benefits, which are in any event already captured in the financial modeling, and it does not alter Microsoft's conclusion. So Microsoft says you got all this math wrong, you have to redo it, and ultimately the news of the day is that the CMA basically agreed. Or as Tom Warren, again of The Verge, reports through Twitter, the UK CMA has provisionally concluded that Microsoft's Activision Blizzard deal will not result in a substantial lessening of competition in console gaming services because Microsoft is unlikely to withhold Call of Duty from PlayStation. Now you might say, doesn't that end the CMA's inquiry? It does not, because if we look at the potential remedies that the CMA was looking at, it was looking at two different markets that could potentially be affected by foreclosure. One, console gaming, and two, cloud gaming services. This latter market, cloud gaming services, is unaffected by the CMA's determination today. Now, they did issue a press release on this where they said the CMA inquiry group has updated its provisional findings and reached the provisional conclusion that overall the transaction will not result in an SLC in relation to console gaming. The most significant new evidence provided to the CMA relates to Microsoft's financial incentives to make Activision's games, including Call of Duty, exclusive to its own consoles. While the CMA's original analysis indicated that this strategy would be profitable under most scenarios, new data, which provides better insight, indicates that this strategy would be significantly loss-making under any plausible scenario. Now, the data didn't really change as best as I can tell. There's some more specifics that Microsoft has provided over the course of the past few months, but the fundamentals didn't change as much as the CMA changed the way that they were looking at things. The CMA's addendum to its provisional findings today relates only to competition in the supply of consoles and not to competition in the supply of cloud gaming services, which is interesting because cloud gaming services doesn't have the same kind of market revenue as the sale of consoles does today. It's not an existing market. It's one of the problems that these regulators are having in proving that there's issues with market competition in general. Martin Coleman, chair of the independent panel of experts conducting this investigation, said, Provisional findings are a key aspect of the merger process and are explicitly designed to give the businesses involved and any interested third parties the chance to respond with new evidence before we make a final decision. Which is another way of the CMA saying, hey, look, this might look like we're reversing course, but this is a feature, not a bug. This is exactly why we do these phase ones and phase two. So don't worry about this. This is everything working as intended. Now, I don't fully give them the credit that they want from this press release on that score, but there was no question that them rolling back and getting rid of some of their more interesting findings in their provisionals is a good thing. We want regulators to have the capacity to look at things again and say, nope, that first part wasn't right. So I'm not going to hold their feet over the coals on this one. Having considered the additional evidence provided, we have now provisionally concluded that the merger will not result in a substantial listing of competition in console gaming services because the cost to Microsoft of withholding Call of Duty from PlayStation would outweigh any gains from taking such action. Our provisional view that this deal raises concerns in the cloud gaming market is not affected by today's announcement. Our investigation remains on course for completion by the end of April. Now, interestingly enough, that cloud gaming market not being affected is going to keep the CMA in play on this stuff, but it doesn't make a ton of sense because of the way that the math has changed here. 
Addendum to Provisional Findings Information gathering takes place through a Phase 2 inquiry. Since we published the provisional findings, we received new evidence relating to the provisional finding of an SLC in console gaming services in the UK, which we assessed together with other relevant evidence. So the CMA sits on, hey, we got new stuff here, and that's what we looked at. Our revised model suggests that making Call of Duty exclusive to Xbox would result in a significant financial loss for Microsoft post-merger. Given the magnitude of these potential losses under all scenarios that we consider to be plausible, we now place significantly more weight on the LTV model than we did at the stage of our provisional findings. So, Microsoft won their case, essentially, with that letter. In relation to its past acquisitions, Microsoft pointed to the similarities between Minecraft and Call of Duty, noting Minecraft's decision to keep Minecraft available on all platforms post-acquisition, in addition to putting it on new platforms such as Nintendo. In relation to its longer-term strategic objectives, Microsoft submitted that these are speculative and uncertain, and that they were already captured by the LTV model. Although this evidence does not differ materially from previous evidence that Microsoft submitted in relation to its previous acquisitions and longer-term strategic objectives, our assessment of it, including the weight that we place on it, has changed in light of the significant losses that the LTV model suggests Microsoft would incur. We remain of the view that the acquisition of Call of Duty differs significantly from any of Microsoft's past gaming studios' acquisitions, and I tend to agree it's not the same as Minecraft, but we now consider that previous acquisitions, many of which were more, in effect, acquisitions of talent for the purpose of making new exclusive content for Xbox, are of relatively less significance in providing insight into the strategy that Microsoft is likely to pursue in relation to Call of Duty. We also consider that there is insufficient evidence to show that the less quantifiable long-term strategic benefits of a foreclosure strategy would outweigh the more tangible losses arising from a total foreclosure strategy indicated by the LTV model. As such, we now place less weight on Microsoft's past behavior and long-term strategic benefits in our assessment of Microsoft's incentives to foreclose PlayStation than we did in the provisional findings. So. Microsoft didn't really change the type of evidence that they were providing. It's just that the CMA looked at the math again, anew, and said, well, since that math seems to totally outweigh Microsoft's incentives to pull Call of Duty from the PlayStation, we don't have to worry about whatever might happen if they did so quite as much. As a result of the submissions that we received after provisional findings, which we have taken into account together with the evidence that we have received to date, we have now provisionally concluded that Microsoft would not have an incentive to engage in a total foreclosure strategy of PlayStation using Call of Duty. We have provisionally concluded that although such strategies could degrade PlayStation's offering to some extent, they would not materially affect its ability to compete. So Sony has said again and again in their statements, hey, what if they degraded our quality and then we weren't the place to go for Call of Duty? That could really hurt us. The CMA has a sentence that says specifically, we don't think that would actually hurt your ability to compete in the video game console space. So this is a big deal. Microsoft won this argument and PlayStation lost. For the avoidance of doubt, nothing in this addendum represents a change in our provisional findings insofar as they relate to cloud gaming services. In our provisional findings, we explained that we had carried out two separate quantitative analyses to assess the party's incentives to foreclose. First, we used users' LTVs and our survey results to estimate gains and losses from a potential total foreclosure strategy over a five-year horizon. Second, we used 2021 data from Microsoft, Activision, and Sony, as well as our survey results to estimate the gains and losses that would result from a total foreclosure strategy on a one-year basis. Our LTV model compared losses from the foregone sales of Call of Duty on PlayStation against margins recouped from gamers who switched from PlayStation to Xbox following a total foreclosure strategy. We calculated losses by multiplying the number of monthly active users on PlayStation in 2021 by an estimate of the average yearly gross profit per Call of Duty gamer that Activision makes on PlayStation. We calculated the gains based on a combination of the results from the consumer survey that we ran among PlayStation Call of Duty gamers and the Xbox LTV of a Call of Duty gamer who switches from playing on PlayStation to playing on either an Xbox or a PC. So that LTV does take into account more years than just the annual gross profit per player. 
So there is a disconnect there in the math. In response to our provisional findings, Microsoft explained the issues there. More generally, Microsoft submitted that it has no incentive to withhold Call of Duty from PlayStation because this would involve immediately foregoing future revenues from Call of Duty on PlayStation, which account in present value terms for approximately X percent of the overall value of the deal with Activision. It's going to be a lot of money that will be left on the table for Call of Duty not to be sold on the PlayStation platform. The parties explained that similar to Minecraft, Call of Duty monetizes its content through subscription payments for multiplayer functionality, merchandise, and game-enhancing features. Longer-term strategic objectives, Microsoft submitted that the LTV model already takes account of the key issues raised as potential long-term strategic benefits, so we can just compare numbers here according to Microsoft. And interestingly, reputational benefits are also included. Microsoft stated that as withholding Call of Duty would directly contradict Microsoft's public statements, the effect would be likely to be very negative given the significant gamer backlash that would inevitably occur following such a reversal. And this is part of the public relations campaign that Microsoft has engaged in over the course of the past year. And I mentioned it in a number of videos in this playlist, but Microsoft has gone out there specifically and made promises that they didn't have to make, suggesting that they were okay with keeping Call of Duty on PlayStation or keeping Call of Duty on various other platforms and doing very th various things with the assets that would otherwise be under their control. And so by putting themselves out there, by becoming pot committed to their promises, they were now able to go and turn that around and tell the CMA, hey, look, we would suffer unimaginable harm if we were to reverse course on those things and so you can hold us to these things from a public relations standpoint even though that might not work with the federal trade commission who has said in their documents that they don't have to believe anything microsoft says it certainly is effective for anybody that isn't taking that stance against microsoft as a corporation a competitor in the console gaming market submitted that given the use of ltvs to measure gains it would be inappropriate to take the losses for one year and multiply them by five to get a five-year ltv According to this competitor, individual gamers tend to reduce their spending over time, so this approach for estimating losses would overstate Microsoft's losses through lost sales. This competitor suggested that taking the losses for one year and multiplying them by the expected number of game purchases over five years would better reflect actual purchasing patterns, but that this approach would omit spending on add-ons, including add-ons on free-to-play releases like Warzone, and thereby may not capture all lost sales. This competitor therefore suggested that the most consistent approach would be to track a given cohort's actual Call of Duty spending over the course of five years to calculate Call of Duty LTVs that are analogous to the LTVs used to measure gains. According to this competitor, Microsoft will have the incentive to withhold Call of Duty from, presumably, Sony post-merger. Now, that's snipped. One wonders if the competitor here is actually Sony itself, saying that, oh, you can't just multiply by five because they spend less money in the later years. A competitor in the console gaming market agreed with the CMA's conclusion in the provisional findings that the merger would result in an SLC. In relation to Microsoft's previous acquisitions, this competitor submitted that Minecraft is not a close analog to Call of Duty, I agree, including because it is a single-release title that was published in 2011, it is based on a legacy monetization model of a one-time fee after which users receive lifetime updates and content, it is not graphically intensive and offers a visual experience that relies on blocky and pixelated visual, I don't think that matters as much, and it does not drive anything close to the level of gameplay, engagement, or purchasing decisions as Call of Duty. Having fewer players, fewer monthly active users, lower engagement levels, less than a third of Call of Duty's gameplay hours, and limited impact on console purchasing decisions. According to this competitor, the closest analog to the current transaction is Microsoft's acquisition of ZeniMax, and perhaps Elder Scrolls along with it. We have considered the parties and third-party submissions on our LTV model and modified the inputs where appropriate. Based on our updated results, our quantitative modeling indicates a total foreclosure strategy would lead to a significant net financial loss for the parties under all scenarios that we consider plausible. In the provisional findings, we used the base LTV and the party's LTV together with our survey results to estimate the Microsoft's potential gains from a total foreclosure strategy across a five-year period. 
We calculated losses by multiplying the average number of Call of Duty MAU on PlayStation in 2021 by an estimate of the average yearly gross profit by Call of Duty Gamer that Activision makes on PlayStation. Again, five years versus one. Our analysis indicated a net profit between some number of billions of dollars. Using the party's LTV, our results indicated a net loss ranging from X million to X million. We considered that the LTV model was therefore consistent with a total foreclosure strategy being profitable. In response to the provisional findings, the parties provided additional data and proposed some changes to our model. First, Microsoft submitted new and more recent figures to calculate the Xbox LTV. These figures were lower than the LTV figures that we used in our model for two reasons. Our LTV was based on early data from Microsoft of a cohort of users who bought an Xbox, SNP. More recent figures show that SNP, meaning that SNP. Now, I don't know exactly what this means because obviously all the important information is redacted, but it does seem to come to mind that the suggestion is that the lifetime value of a user who buys an Xbox at launch may be more significant than later adopters of a console, that hardcore gamers, people that are really interested in video games, get in on day one or at that early stage, and as the years go by and people purchase consoles because they want to have something entertaining under their TV, they might be less invested in purchasing games and add-ons for those software items. Given that the Xbox Series XS was launched in November 2020, SNP. Microsoft explained that SNP. Microsoft's internal data suggests SNP. We consider that using Microsoft's most recent LTV data for the user co cohort that we originally measured is likely to produce more accurate results, given Microsoft's submission that it contains more robust data on the spending patterns of this cohort. As such, we updated our LTV model on that basis, which yielded an updated Xbox LTV figure of SNP, presumably something reduced from what was already calculated as the LTV gains that they could achieve by bringing someone over from PlayStation over to Xbox. We do not consider, however, that it is necessary to adopt a weighted average LTV of Xbox users that includes later adopters. We consider that the users likely to switch from PlayStation to Xbox in response to a foreclosure strategy are more likely to have spending patterns that resemble early adopters than later adopters. Now, this is said without any reasoning, backing, or documentary evidence, so I highlighted it in red because it's an interesting concept. They're saying we're not going to take later adopter LTV and weighted average it with early adopter LTV, even if they're different, because we think that somebody that switches from PlayStation to Xbox for Call of Duty is more likely to act like an early adopter of the Xbox ecosystem. And I have my doubts there, I have to be honest. I think early adopters of an Xbox are people that are really gung-ho about Xbox and probably pretty gung-ho about video games and are likely to buy a lot more things than somebody who is a Call of Duty player that is such a Call of Duty player that they don't really care what box they play on at all. They're just moving over to wherever Call of Duty is. Now, that might or might not be the case, but I would like evidence either way before I were to make an assertion like we think it's going to be more like early spenders than later spenders. Second, the party submitted that in calculating the gains to Microsoft of a withholding strategy, our model used a five-year gross profit figure. In calculating the losses, it used a single year of losses. The parties proposed extending the calculation of losses to include a five-year LTV on PlayStation. Microsoft submitted that its telemetry data shows that on average over a five-year period, Call of Duty gamers purchased between SNP and SNP Call of Duty titles over a five-year period, probably pretty close to five. The party suggested a number of different ways of calculating the LTV of a Call of Duty gamer, including as the net present value of X amount of dollars per year for, five, for X years, which they calculate to be X. Although we recognize that gains and losses from a total foreclosure strategy should be calculated over a similar time frame, we consider that the party's proposed calculation remains inaccurate. In particular, the suggestion to multiply average margin per Call of Duty MAU by SNP purchased over five years does not seem to sufficiently uh, accurately proxy for losses during that period since gamers not only spend on Call of Duty by buying games, but also through in-game purchases. Similarly, we do not agree with the approach of calculating losses proposed by the third-party competitor, 
to estimate losses by tracking a cohort's actual spending because we consider that the opportunity cost of withholding Call of Duty from PlayStation amounts to all relevant profit that would be lost from this strategy, not just the lost profits on a single cohort of gamers. That's true, but I would assume that the proposal was to use a cohort and then extrapolate from that cohort across the ecosystem of PlayStation users, not just the cohort itself. If that was not the case, well, then the CMA is right. However, we don't have a lot of trust in the math that they're using on this after this particular addendum has been filed. Third, the party submitted that the LTV model wrongly assumes that non-surveyed Call of Duty gamers are equally likely to divert to another console as Call of Duty gamers that were captured by our survey. The parties noted that our survey targeted gamers with 10 hours of gameplay on Call of Duty or $100 of spending on Call of Duty on PlayStation, which according to data submitted by Sony, captured around X percent of PlayStation gamers who played Call of Duty during the relevant period. Since our survey did not capture the behavior of approximately the other portion of PlayStation Call of Duty gamers, the party submitted that we should include an assumption that these non-surveyed Call of Duty gamers do not switch consoles at all. We do not have sufficient evidence to precisely estimate the switching rate of non-surveyed PlayStation Call of Duty gamers. They're non-surveyed. In our provisional findings, we assessed different scenarios, one in which non-surveyed gamers did not switch to PlayStation at all, and one in which they switched the same rate as surveyed Call of Duty gamers. We considered these scenarios to represent two extremes of a possible range of switching rates for this group, and presented both possible outcomes. Since these gamers would have played Call of Duty for a more limited time and or spent less money on it than surveyed gamers, we now consider it appropriate to focus on an outcome in which those gamers would not switch consoles in response to a total foreclosure, because they're not worth as much, it's not going to shift as much. Fourth, in our provisional findings, we weighted our survey results by spending game time on Call of Duty to reflect that gamers spend different amounts of times and money on Call of Duty. We now recognize that LTVs already reflect the value of gamers, including the value of gamers who would switch from Xbox to PlayStation. As such, it is not necessary to adopt a further weighting to approximate the value more closely. Finally, since our provisional findings, we have, in considering the party submissions, also reconsidered the most appropriate way to estimate the annual profit per user of Call of Duty that Activision makes on PlayStation. In our provisional findings, we adopted the methodology used by the parties. They used MAU data as the basis to compute the annual profit per user that Activision makes for Call of Duty on PlayStation. We considered that this figure, which is based on MAUs of a single month in a single year, may not be representative of Call of Duty gamers as a whole, but that does seem like a pretty effective way to count that. Instead, we consider that it is more appropriate to use yearly active users who spent at least 10 hours or $100 in 2021 in line with our survey sample. We received two different estimates for these, one from Activision and one from Sony. We used both figures and did not have to reconcile the difference between the two because using either of them led us to a similar conclusion on the profitability of a total foreclosure strategy. The party submitted that using MAUs is more appropriate because it accurately measures a game's level of user engagement and success over time, and it ensures consistency throughout the CMA's calculation. As a sensitivity, we also use the average number of MAUs. Accounting for these changes, we find that the results of our updated LTV-based analysis leads to a net loss of more than X billion, with a B, over a five-year time period under all scenarios. No matter what we did to it, if Microsoft were to pull Call of Duty from PlayStation, they would lose billions of dollars. The detailed results are summarized in the table below. That's how you convince a regulatory body, by the way. If their math suddenly shows that anything that they can offer as plausible results in the billions of dollars of loss, they don't have a lot of reason to believe that the company is going to voluntarily do that particular thing. In light of the magnitude of these potential losses under any plausible scenario, we now consider it appropriate to place more weight on the quantifiable losses for Microsoft of engaging in a total foreclosure strategy post-merger. In terms of past acquisitions, in light of the parties and third-party submissions on Microsoft's past acquisitions, together with the context provided by the revised model, we consider that it would be appropriate to revisit our interpretation and the weight that we place on Microsoft's broader strategic incentive to engage in a partial foreclosure strategy based on its past behavior. In our provisional findings, we noted that Microsoft has acquired a range of gaming studios over the past few years, 
and with very few exceptions, has made their future releases of games ex exclusive or redirected the efforts of those studios to produce exclusive Xbox games. We recognize that Activision is a bigger studio than any acquired by Microsoft before, but concluded that this pattern of behavior seems to be consistent with Microsoft's commercial strategy. In its response to our provisional findings, Microsoft did not dispute that most of the studios that it has acquired have been redeployed to make new games that are exclusive to Xbox. Microsoft submitted, however, that its acquisition of Minecraft is the closest analog to this merger. According to Microsoft, Minecraft is also a globally popular multiplayer franchise with a strong player community and social element that was available on multiple platforms when Microsoft acquired it. We recognize that Minecraft and Call of Duty have certain similarities, but we remain of the view that none of Microsoft's previous acquisitions are sufficiently similar to this merger to provide dispositive evidence that Microsoft would not engage in a total foreclosure strategy using Call of Duty. Which is probably the right way to think about things, right? Rather than the Federal Trade Commission here in the United States saying we don't believe Microsoft on anything, what the CMA is saying here is that actually nothing that they've previously bought is anywhere near Call of Duty because we're treating Call of Duty as this special diamond, so we might as well treat it that way for this purpose as well. Call of Duty is not the same as Minecraft because it's not the same as Elder Scrolls because it's not the same as anything else that Microsoft has ever purchased. So we have to treat it differently and we can't take as dispositive anything that Microsoft has done in the past one way or the other. We remain of the view that console providers, including Microsoft, place significant value in having exclusive content to differentiate their platform and attract more users. Most first-party Xbox and PlayStation games are exclusive to their respective platform, and almost every studio that Microsoft has bought now makes games exclusive to Xbox. Moreover, where Microsoft has seen value in making multi-platform third-party studio games exclusive to Xbox, it has done so. For example, the upcoming release in the Redfall franchise following the Bethesda acquisition. The Redfall franchise? Your lips to Arcane's ears. We consider, however, that the financial and strategic calculation of creating new exclusive games for Xbox may be different from that of making Call of Duty exclusive to Xbox. Making an existing multiplayer game franchise exclusive leads to quantifiable losses, i.e. lost revenues from customers on other platforms, which have to be weighed against uncertain gains, i.e. increased revenues from new Xbox customers. This is the CMA finally coming to grips with what the video game industry actually is, so this is good. We want to support this from our regulators. We want them to say, hey, you know what, that first crack that we took, that wasn't so great. We need to look at it again. This is good, even if it comes a little bit later than some of us would like. Longer term strategic objectives, they wind up agreeing with Microsoft that that's already incorporated into what an LTV is. Partial foreclosure, we don't really looking at. That's the kind of concept of keeping beta access or bonus items only on the Microsoft ecosystem and not allowing them on PlayStation. That's a tricky thing for Sony to argue for anyway because Sony does that right now. In respect of the ability to foreclose, the CMA doesn't come all the way around to Microsoft's position that they couldn't have the ability to keep PlayStation out of competition, period. We have not seen any robust evidence to suggest that PlayStation users would switch from PlayStation to Xbox at the same rate in response to partial and total foreclosure strategies. We consider that it is unlikely that they would do so since only under a par partial foreclosure strategy, Call of Duty would still be available on PlayStation. So they revised their findings to provisionally conclude that the parties would have an incentive to engage in a total foreclosure strategy in console using Call of Duty on the basis of evidence of quantifiable gains and losses associated with foreclosure. So we're going to look at our provisional findings and we're going to readjust that and say, nope, we don't think that's the case anymore. And that's exactly what they put out in their press release. So as these things go, this is a big day for Microsoft. The CMA, one of the more, let's say, public concerned bodies regarding the purchase of Activision has wound back its most contentious claim, which is that Microsoft could use Call of Duty to kick PlayStation out of the video game console business entirely. 
CMA says that is unlikely to happen now because Microsoft is unlikely to withhold Call of Duty. Now, we still have to look at those cloud gaming services, but the math there seems even more suspect because of how nascent that market is. There's no indication even that there is a market to have profitability earned from as of yet here in 2023. And so that's going to be a long-term problem for the CMA, but it doesn't mean that they won't necessarily regulate on it. So we'll see where that goes ultimately. The Verge did wind up reporting on that today. Again, Tom Warren. I highly recommend following him on Twitter and following him on The Verge. UK regulator sides with Microsoft over Call of Duty on PlayStation concerns. I think that might be UK regulator sides with Microsoft over PlayStation on Call of Duty concerns. Maybe I'd reverse Call of Duty and PlayStation in this headline. But either way, they reported on it and they also got a quote from Microsoft that says, We appreciate the CMA's rigorous and thorough evaluation of the evidence and welcome its updated provisional findings. This deal will provide more players with more choice in how they play Call of Duty and their favorite games. We look forward to working with the CMA to resolve any outstanding concerns. And this is the same tack that you saw Sony take with respect to some of the things it agreed with from the CMA and other regulators before. Oh yes, you are very wise CMA, well done, but I do agree with overall the strategy of saying, yes regulators, look at your things again, don't just get locked into whatever your provisional findings are in the first instance, and let's figure it out from there. Now, notably, you've heard the word provisional a lot in this video already. CMA is not bound to determining that there is no ability for Microsoft to not foreclose the Call of Duty or the Sony PlayStation from the console ecosystem. So that's still provisional. In their own statement, they call for people to give additional comments if they think that they got this part wrong now, that the math is now more wrong, or that they aren't considering something important that would allow Microsoft to do this very thing that we're, we're concerned about. Additionally, You've got other people commenting all over the place on this on Twitter and sending me direct messages. And I did want to comment on that a little bit. Here's Benji Sales, who I also recommend following on Twitter. He's got a lot of great information. He says, this deal is basically done. There are still concerns over cloud, but Microsoft has made moves to address that as well. CMA was the most difficult hurdle to pass, and it looks like that's not far off now. Activision Blizzard acquisition will close by June, in my opinion. Now, I do recommend following him. I disagree with this overall assertion. The deal is not basically done. The Federal Trade Commission still has a pending litigatory action with its own administrative law judge that is not at all remotely finished, and that doesn't mean that the Federal Trade Commission will ultimately win, but it does mean that they could gum up the works potentially, and I had a number of people ask me about that, so I wound up saying I probably wouldn't close over a pending FTC action, and you might hear me say close over a lot in the coming weeks here as we look at this deal more closely and get closer to closing concept of closing over something is that in a merger agreement or any other long-term agreement where you sign and then you do a couple of things, you get regulatory approval, you do more due diligence, and then you close, you have a number of rules under which you have to close, right? So if there is no litigation, if everything is all hunky-dory, if all the due diligence checks are passed, if all the regulators approve, then you would have to close this deal. If you don't have regulatory approval from the FTC, if there's a pending litigation, like we're looking at with respect to the administrative action, then generally speaking, the merger agreement is going to say something like, that's you don't have to close if you don't want to until that's all settled now microsoft can still close over that they can still close anyway it's their option to do so and they might the parties might close over a federal trade commission action i wouldn't generally suggest that that's the common way to deal with these things but this is an unusual circumstance and it would suggest if they decide to close over it that microsoft basically doesn't think that there's any risk that the federal trade commission is ultimately going to carry the day but if i'm looking at this right now I'm not sitting here thinking that Microsoft is necessarily going to just take the European Commission and the CMA and potential approvals there and say we're going to close this deal and whatever comes with the Federal Trade Commission hearing after the fact we'll just live with. Ordinarily you wouldn't see that in business. Now some people did 
suggest to me that I had missed a bit of news from the first week in January. If you aren't familiar, I was a little bit out of sorts that first week in January, so I didn't see this as it happened, but I think we have to talk about this a little bit as well. So here's an article from MP First, Multiplayer First, one assumes. Microsoft lawyer states they will close Activision acquisition if no Federal Trade Commission resolution is reached. And this was in a preliminary hearing with the administrative law judge from the Federal Trade Commission. Microsoft's lead counsel, Beth Wilkinson, stated in the pretrial hearing that once Microsoft and ABK managed to work out a remedy with pending jurisdictions, that's the UK and Europe, the deal will quote-unquote go forward. She also mentions that the companies already assume that this will result in the FTC taking the case to federal court. Wilkinson also stated that if the company works out any remedies with the European Commission or the CMA, it will offer the same remedies to the FTC. To prepare for the potential development to federal court, Microsoft and ABK have agreed to expedite the discovery schedule with the FTC due to the deal's termination date being middle of July 2023. Now, people sent this to me after I commented and said I wouldn't close over this deal if I were in charge and said Microsoft's already said they will. There's a couple of things I would mention on this particular point. One, it's rhetorically useful for Microsoft's counsel to tell the Federal Trade Commission, who's on the other side of the room for this Federal Trade Commission hearing, that they're going to go forward with this anyway, so they better fish or cut bait on this stuff. That you're rhetorically moving the other party to say, hey, we're, we mean business, so you better get your stuff together in order to bring a complaint against us. That's useful to you if you're Microsoft. It doesn't necessarily need to be taken by us on the outside for the truth value of what's being asserted, right? That Microsoft might be saying this, but there are things that you say in a litigatory environment in order to move a party, in order to convince a party of something, in order to position yourself with leverage or to present that you have certain leverage that you may or may not have. And so this might be a circumstance where Microsoft says, we want them to think that we'll just go right over them so they better get their stuff done or drop this case. And if they don't, will make them look bad in federal court because what the FTC is probably concerned about, we talked about this earlier in the playlist, is that they don't have a very strong case in federal court. That's something that we'll see a little bit more towards the end of this video. And they probably know that at this point. And if the CMA and the European Union move to not block this deal, move to allow it, and the Federal Trade Commission is just standing alone doing its thing, that's going to be even harder fight for them to win in the long term. The other thing I will say here is that Microsoft doesn't have to just be presenting. It doesn't have to be a bluff. They could fully believe that this is what they will do if they find themselves in the circumstance where the European Union and the UK approve the deal, but the FTC is sitting there with an adjudicative action against them at the time. They might think that they're going to just move forward with it and let the FTC chips fall where they may, but actions speak louder than words, and until you're actually faced with that circumstance, you don't actually have to make that decision. So the one thing I would say here is this is a good indication that Microsoft intends to say that we're going to close this deal and the Federal Trade Commission better watch out, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's going to happen at the end of the day. So I would say this is a good bit of information, a good bit of evidence that people have been presenting me in my direct messages all day, but don't take it as sacrosanct. Don't take it as already decided on the Microsoft level. It might not be decided. It might also just be being used as essentially presenting their seriousness to a federal regulatory body that has decided to potentially block their transaction. Now, going off of that and going a little bit further, I do want to mention, as I just said, there are issues from a federal perspective from the Federal Trade Commission's look. The Gamers lawsuit, which we covered at the end of last year, which is a lawsuit in Northern California that was brought by specific individual gamers, particularly of the PlayStation ecosystem, seeking to block the deal on their own behalf, has come under a little bit of an issue as well. As I said, a couple of news items this week 
that are very much in favor of Microsoft closing this deal sooner rather than later with Activision. And that's a lawsuit here that we looked at, as I said, at the end of last year. And in commenting on this particular action, I said in my video that this was actually worse than the Federal Trade Commission's action, which if you followed this playlist at all, you know is fighting words from me. The Federal Trade Commission does not have a strong case. These individuals have an even weaker case. And as I pointed out, it's unusual for individuals to bring in anti-merger litigation in general because it's so hard to get the information necessary and the federal agencies are already looking at these things anyway. So as it happened a couple of days ago, the judge in this particular case said the following, the complaint does not plausibly allege the merger creates a reasonable probability of anti-competitive effects in any relevant market. And so the court kicked it out on Microsoft's motion to dismiss. That's very early in a litigation proceeding, and it's a big win for Microsoft. It doesn't, however, mean that even this lawsuit is over or that Microsoft has won on the merits or that the Federal Trade Commission would have to follow this kind of thought process that the judge puts forward here. First, as we look through this document, we'll note a couple of things. One, the court granted the motion to amend the initial complaint because primarily the court doesn't find that there's an issue with the logic provided by the potential complainants here, but more so that the complaint itself, the pleading, the document, the paper that was put before the judge didn't include enough detail to actually make the assertion that was put forth within its, within its bounds. So the judge says, look, I didn't get enough information. You didn't plead your complaint with enough specificity for me to determine that there is anything that could have legal redress that the court could solve for you and so we can kick it out now on a motion to dismiss. Microsoft does not dispute the merger could occur anytime on or after May 22nd, 2023, and only not until then because Microsoft stipulated not to merge before that. And this is the first time I've seen this date in a legal document like this. So those that are asking me when this deal is gonna close, Microsoft has stipulated in official documentation that it will not be before May 22nd, 2023. So that's really the first date on your calendars for those of you keeping track at home. Continuing on, I thought in my original video that there was a pretty good standing complaint that Microsoft really didn't bring. So the only thing the court finds that the plaintiffs don't have standing with respect to reduced competition in the labor market because it didn't come, they didn't claim to be a part of that market. We did mention that in our earlier video. And then Microsoft does not challenge the adequacy of any of the alleged markets that these complaints bring. Instead, it argues plaintiffs have not alleged facts that plausibly support and inference that merger creates an appreciable danger of anti-competitive effects. The court agrees. So. In looking at this particular document, the court kicked out the gamer's lawsuit by saying, plaintiff's general allegation that the merger may cause higher prices, less innovation, less creativity, less consumer choice, decreased output, and other potential anti-competitive effects is insufficient. Why? How would those things happen? They didn't explain exactly what mechanisms would result in this loss of consumer choice or these higher prices. Now, interestingly, the Federal Trade Commission's existing complaint on an administrative level doesn't really include a lot of the mechanisms of the why and the how either. So there isn't anything that really jumps out of the gamers lawsuit as less descriptive than what the Federal Trade Commission has put forth. But the Federal Trade Commission isn't filing a federal lawsuit right now. It's just an administrative action that they're doing in-house. So if it did come to pass that they wanted to bring an injunction against a deal that Microsoft otherwise wanted to move forward as their lead counsel suggests, they would have to put together another document to try to block the deal at a federal level. But ultimately, they would face some of the same burdens that the gamers had here and might have the same outcome. 
for those of you that have asked me, hey, does this hurt the Federal Trade Commission's case? It hurts their case insofar as someone else looked at similar issues and decided that they were ridiculous. And it hurts their case that the European Union and the United Kingdom might decide to allow the deal and say that any other thoughts are ridiculous. But it doesn't legally bind them to any of those particular outcomes, right? The Federal Trade Commission doesn't just have to drop the case because this happens or doesn't just have to drop the case because Europe agrees that the deal is okay. The FTC is its own plenary body, has its own authority to decide what is and isn't a problem under the laws that are under its ambit. And so while I know a number of you want to look at this and say, logically, this weakens their case, logically it does. Legally, it doesn't matter quite as much. So I think that's important to take into account as well. Even though we can look at these things and I think it's a good day for Microsoft, it doesn't mean that the Federal Trade Commission has to drop its case. And looking at how they've operated over the past couple of months, it doesn't mean that they will. They are a political body and they're acting pretty politically in the last couple of months specifically. This exclusivity ability creates an appreciable danger of harm to competition between Xbox and PlayStation and between Microsoft and rival PC operating systems, including Mac. These allegations do not plausibly support a reasonable probability of anti-competitive effects in a particular market that would harm plaintiffs. While plaintiffs allege Microsoft might obtain the ability to make Activision's games exclusive, and they assert Microsoft would have an incentive to do so, they do not make any factual allegations that support the conclusory incentive assertion. Why would Microsoft make Call of Duty ex exclusive to its platforms, thus resulting in fewer games sold? You have to do some of that math. That's what the CMA has been working on. That's what the entire first half of this video was about. It is, is it possible that Microsoft will make Activision's game catalog fully or partially exclusive? Yes. Have plaintiffs alleged facts that make it plausible Microsoft is reasonably likely to do so? Without more factual context, no. Plaintiff's allegations, including that Call of Duty has been developed for the Xbox, the PlayStation, and for Windows PCs and can be purchased for all three of those platforms, are equally consistent with there being no appreciable danger Microsoft will make Activision games exclusive to Microsoft platforms, at least not games amassing $1 billion within 10 days of release across several platforms. Said another way, the judge looks at the current ecosystem and says Activision is making all this money on all these platforms. Why exactly would Microsoft give away that product? Why would it make it exclusive? Why would it hurt the money that can be made? What is it buying and why? And the court says, it's possible that you might be right, but you didn't plead that in the documents that you put forth to me, so I can't decide on it, and you don't have a, com you don't have a complaint that any court could decide upon. Plaintiffs insist that to meet their prima facie burden, they need only allege an appreciable danger of elimination of a rival. So because they have alleged Microsoft and Activision are non-trivial competitors in game development, game publishing, and game distribution, they have met their prima facie burden and motion to, di to dismiss must be denied. But this argument ignores binding Ninth Circuit precedent. To meet its prima facie burden, a plaintiff must allege facts that plausibly show it is reasonably probable a merger will be anti-competitive. In practical terms, this means adequately alleging facts that an acquisition creates an appreciable danger or a reasonable probability of anti-competitive effects in the relevant market. So this, again, is kind of what we've seen with regulators. It isn't enough to even say that you wipe out Sony. That isn't alone anti-competitive. In fact, that's kind of the height of competition, as we've said, in this space. Competitors want to, to destroy each other. That's competing for market share. So if you destroy Sony, what happens to the market? You can't just say Sony's gone and it's obvious what happens to the marketplace. You have to tell the court that. And actually looking at this document in its, in its entirety, I think for the most part, what the judge is asking for is an amended complaint that better describes all of these various things. I would expect the plaintiffs to file that amended complaint if they have law firm representation that is willing to continue to represent them. That's an open question. I don't know exactly why they represented them in the first instance. But right now, I would expect this to get refiled. But as of this week, Microsoft has a big win with the CMA. They have a big win with this gamers lawsuit. And ultimately, 
The deal looks much closer to completion than it did even as early as a month ago. So that's been Virtual Legality for today. If you do enjoy these videos and you want to see more of them, please consider supporting the channel on Utreon or on Patreon, as Melissa Latimer has done. Thank you so much, Melissa. Or if none of those options appeal to you, just subscribing and telling your friends. Every little bit helps. And on that score, as you can probably tell from my voice and from the lower cadence of videos that we've been putting up on the channel of late, if you didn't know, I had a stroke at the end of last year, and those medical bills have been piling up. We've already got claims from various medical authorities in excess of $200,000. We think our health insurance is going to cover a good chunk of that, but we don't know. And you can, if you're interested in supporting me personally, check out the GoFundMe that my sister and my wife, Mrs. Hoglaw, put up together to help give me a little bit more space to pay my health insurance and otherwise cover the fact that I haven't been practicing a lot of law over the last three months. But don't feel obligated to do any of that at all. Again, if you just want to subscribe, tell your friends, hit the like button, do anything else, that's great. If you really hated this video, the dislike button is there for your use as well. But thank you so much for checking it out. And if you are interested in the stroke process and the rehab process, I am looking to put together a video that will hopefully have at least some of my therapists come on and talk to you a little bit about all of that. I want to talk about my experience and what kind of things were warning signs and what weren't. And if you're interested in any of that or if you have any questions on that, I do have a post up in the community posts that ask for and solicit those questions. A lot of people have already asked questions, a lot of really good ones in there. And I am going to put that video together sooner rather than later. So if you're interested in any of that, please do check that out. Now, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Thank you so much. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.